You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. have calendars on our desk or we have one of those little things that have a calendar in it. We write down all the things that we're going to do and all the stuff that we're doing. I have that and I always forget what I'm doing anyway. God doesn't live on our timetable. God lives on a different timetable. He lives on a divine timetable. God's timetable is divine. It's far above our timetable. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He lives on a divine timetable and is completely marked out for Jesus Don't get upset with God when you don't feel He's coming through for your timetable. His understanding is far beyond yours, and the promises He's placed over your life will come to be in perfect timing. Pastor Dave challenges you today to fully accept the will of God and to faithfully expect Him to come through for you. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of John chapter 2. As he begins his message, come as you are. We're going to start a new chapter in the book of John. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses in chapter 2, and we're going to look at those. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll get you one, and we'll place it into that hand. There's one over here, guys. Anybody else in need of a Bible? Keep your hand up until we have one securely in your possession. So, As we go through this wonderful Gospel of John, written so you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the mindset of the Apostle John as he writes this letter, this gospel. I'm going to read aloud the first 12 verses, if you would please follow along silently. Gospel of John, chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they had ran out, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior." You have kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So a young couple, very much in love, were getting married. 
The bride was extremely nervous because this was a big occasion. So the pastor chose a verse in the Bible that would encourage her. He chose for his verse 1 John 4.18, and it reads this way, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The pastor had asked the best man to read it as a surprise to the bride to encourage her. Now, the best man was not a churchgoer as such, and he really didn't know the Bible very well. So as the bride and groom stood at the altar, the pastor nodded at the best man, and he opened up the Word of God. And before he began to read, the pastor declared to those in attendance, I chose this passage especially for the bride today, and it's meant for her. So the best man began to read. However, instead of turning to 1 John 4.18, he turned to the Gospel of John 4.18, and he read this. You have five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. You know, weddings are one of the most important events in a person's life. The wedding day is supposed to be a joyous day. Months, years are spent planning the wedding. From picking out the bride's dress, the church, the caterer, the reception hall, the band, the DJ, deciding on the guest list, the flowers, and everything goes on and on and on. Each bride wants her wedding to be perfect. But as you know, sometimes things don't go the way they're planned. There's always those little things that happen which are not in the planning. There was another wedding that the bride asked her six-year-old nephew to be the ring bearer. The day of the wedding arrived, and the little boy showed up all dressed up in a tux, looking really sharp. He was given the white pillow, and he was told to march in with the bridesmaids right before the bride. As he walked in, though, he walked in, and he went, and each step he took, he went, all the way down. Everybody in attendance kept on looking at the young man, as he walked down. The After the wedding, the pastor came up to me and said, son, why did you make such noises coming down the aisle? And he said, I wanted people to know that I was the ring bearer. <laughs> this morning, we are going to look at a wedding that seemed to be going quite well until a major problem developed. The host was quickly running out of refreshments, and all the guests didn't know it, but they ran out of wine. This could have been a terrible thing for that culture. It could have been a major faux pas, causing not only embarrassment, but it could result in not only resentment, but disgrace to the family as well. We have the story of Christ's miraculous conversion of water into wine at the marriage in Cana of Galilee. Now, as I prayed, as we read through these wonderful stories in the Gospels, and there is a tendency sometimes to take them for granted, but there are so many lessons that we can actually learn from these accounts. Put yourself in the place of the new disciples that we met last week. Put yourself in their place. These men have left their families. They've left their jobs. They basically have left everything behind, and they've started a lifelong walk that began by simply trusting in this man named Jesus. They drew close to him, and they began to learn from him 
and they began to learn about him. Each day, each event that they attended brought marvels to their eyes that they've never dreamed of. Some of these marvels were extremely difficult for them to understand. He spoke like no one else had ever spoken. They had never in their life experienced anyone quite like him. They believed somehow he was their Messiah, the Son of God. But yet, there was a hesitancy. They were hesitant. So many questions, so few answers. But they followed him. And I want to point out that they were following him at this time, and he had not done any miracles. No miracles were accomplished at this time. So many of us want to follow Jesus when he shows us a miracle. And you know the old saying, show me and I'll believe. The Bible clearly says, believe and he'll show you. But on this day, however, it would change everything for them. See, Jesus didn't spoil a good time. Jesus has never spoiled a good time in my life. In fact, my life has become more enriched and my times have become much, much better with Jesus there. See, the Lord enters these normal circumstances of life and he sanctifies them with his presence. And here in Cana, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus honors not only the guests, but he honors the bride and groom and he elevates the institution of marriage just by his presence alone. I think it's quite good when a couple invites Jesus to the wedding. I've been to weddings and even have performed a few when Jesus wasn't invited, and it was kind of hollow. But when they ask me to do the wedding, guaranteed I always include Jesus, even when they tell me not to. So Mary, Jesus, and the disciples went to a wedding. There's an important part of the wedding ceremony in Jewish tradition, and it's the wedding feast. It's a very, very important part. The wedding feast usually happened in the home of the groom or in a family member of the groom. The wedding feast usually lasted seven days, so it was quite a feast. In fact, it's sometimes called the seven days of hoopah. Seven days of hoopah. That's kind of cool. So they had to have plenty of food, and they needed plenty of wine to keep the guests satisfied. The ruler of the feast was responsible for all the preparations. Now, this lends a lot of scholars to believe that somehow Mary was related to whomever was being married because she knew that there was no wine. So was she the hostess? It doesn't say. It just says she was there, not that she was invited. I don't know. We can, you can make up your own mind. But she was the one that knew that there was no wine left. But the feast would begin with great dancing and celebration. Everybody that attended would actually be given special garments to wear. Wedding garments, they were given. The atmosphere was extremely festive. But at some point during this giant feast, the unexpected happened. They ran out of wine. And we look at verse 3. Mary notices it, and she goes and she tells Jesus. And they, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. They have no wine. Why did Mary tell Jesus this? Why, why would Mary go up to him and say, they don't have any wine? I've come up with kind of a solution that I think works for me. In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 2, after the angels sang to the shepherds, after the shepherds came and saw the baby and all those marveled, in verse 19 it says, 
But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And if I will, if you will allow me, in Luke 1, verse 30 through 35, listen to what the angel tells Mary when he's telling her that she's going to have this baby. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there should be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I know no man? And the angel answered to her and said, No, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary pondered on this. Mary thought about this in her heart. She pondered these things. For the last 30 years, she's been thinking about all these things, looking at her son and remembering what the angel had said to her. Maybe she was wondering, when is this going to happen? When is he going to show himself to the people? When is he going to declare that he is the Son of God? When is he going to declare his worth? Was she anticipating that day? Was she looking for it that day? And did she have an ulterior motive? You're thinking, what ulterior motive? Well, you know, for 30 years she lived with the stigma and speculation and the rumor that Jesus was illegitimate. For 30 years, she's been telling people that he was born of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, right. Was probably the response she got. Later on, in the Gospel of John, even the Pharisees accused Jesus of being born out of fornication. So it was common knowledge. Was she seeking restoration to her reputation? Was she looking for something? Is, is it not possible that she looked to her son, knowing who he was, and after 30 years says, can this be the time? Can, can we do it now? Can I, can I have a little vindication at last? But notice, however, Mary did not tell Jesus what to do. Mary simply went to him and reported, they have no wine. Interesting, because in the Bible, wine can represent joy. It can represent celebration and festivity. It can represent the abundant blessing of God. It was an important commodity, and it was associated with the ongoing life of a community, actually. To run short would have been a huge, serious problem. Now, in verse 4, Jesus' answer might surprise some. His answer might surprise some. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Sounds harsh. Some have even called it a rebuke. I'm not so sure it was rebuke because in that culture, the term woman was a term of respect. It was, it was a term of respect. And, but many believe that now Jesus was saying, things are going to be different. We're going to relate to each other in a different way. We're going to relate to each other in a different way. You remember when the, the, when the crowd came to him and said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers and sisters are here. What was Jesus' response? Who is my mother? Who is my brothers and sisters. So maybe Jesus was saying, we're going to relate now in a different way. She was no longer hiding under her supervision. It's believed at this time that Joseph is dead. But from now on, he would be doing exactly what the father had called him to do. He was now about his father's business. And didn't he hint at that back in Luke 2, 49? Remember when he got lost? They couldn't find him and he was in the temple. And when they found him, he said, shouldn't you know I'm supposed to be about my father's business? He was 12. 
18 years later, he says, not my hour. It's interesting this term, my hour, is using John's gospel seven times. What hour is Jesus referring to? In John 17, Jesus prays this. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. This is the hour he's talking about. The hour of crucifixion. The hour of resurrection. The hour of ascension. The, the hour of the time where the refutable declaration of who Jesus is. He told his mother Mary, my hour has not come yet. It's a time of undeniable proof of Jesus' deity as he's raised from the dead, as he ascends into heaven. The hour is when his earthly ministry is completed. His mission is accomplished and the Father is glorified. And we know that that took place first on a cross. The mission completed with the words, it is finished. The idea of an, of an hour, this hour is the key element in John's account. Why? Because Jesus didn't live by an earthly timetable. Many of you, and I included, have calendars on our desk, or we have one of those little things that have a calendar in it. We write down all the things that we're going to do and all the stuff that we're doing. I have that, and I always forget what I'm doing anyhow. God doesn't live on our timetable. God lives on a different timetable. He lives on a divine timetable. God's timetable is divine. It's far above our timetable. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He lives on a divine timetable and is completely marked out for Jesus. Jesus knew the timetable. He knew the markings of the timetable. And that's why the scripture says he took his face like a flint towards the cross. And everything he did, everything he accomplished, even this miracle was pointing to the cross and led to the cross. Everything. What do I have to do with you? My hour's not coming. It's not time for this. It's not time for this to happen. There are still things to do. In verse 5, John records the very, very last words of Mary in the Bible. These are the last words of Mary in the Bible, and I think that all of us need to take heed of what Mary is saying here. It is our focus verse for the day. It's what we really need to think. What is Jesus telling us, or what can we learn? If you can learn one thing from these 12 verses today, that's the scripture we need to learn. Mary simply looks at the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. Wow, pretty good advice. Really, really good advice. Whatever he says, do it. Trust me on this, folks. Wow, they're significant words. Mary directs the servants to her son. She reveals that she is now willing to let her son do whatever it pleased him, and she trusted him to do whatever was right. Notice, please notice she's not acting as a liaison. Mary is not a liaison between us and Jesus. We come to Jesus on our own. We come to him by ourselves. We do not have to go through anyone. Jesus, in fact, is the liaison between us and God. There is no one in between us and Jesus. Please don't make that mistake. It's a sad commentary that many believe that you have to go to Mary to get to Jesus and to the fathers. It's not biblical. It's worth noting that Jesus took care of the problem, not Mary. Mary didn't take care of the problem. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Then we don't even know what happened to her. She walked away and enjoyed the party. It was also noteworthy that Jesus pointed to, Mary pointed to Jesus, didn't point to herself. She pointed to Jesus. Something like this says to me that oftentimes we ask the Lord to do something that will kind of get us off the hook. Sometimes we ask the Lord to, to let, do something that will kind of make us look better. Nobody wants to look bad. 
We ask the Lord to make us look better, help us look better. We ask him to do something that will smooth the road or even lighten the load. And just like Mary's request, when we ask those things in reality, they're self-centered. If it's true that Mary wanted herself vindicated, that was self-centeredness. As right as it may be, it was still self-centered. When we want things, we're self-centered. And Jesus says to us, what do I have to do with you? It's not my hour yet. And we go, what? I thought you were, but I, what? It's not my hour yet. What is he saying? He's saying, now's not the time. Now's not the place. Trust me, the problem will be solved. Trust me, your reputation will be salvaged. Trust me, the provision will be made. And yes, the healing's going to come, but not yet. My hour hasn't come. And we need to, by faith, accept that and be obedient to what he is telling us. Whatever he says, do. Whatever he says, do. It's good to pay attention to these words that are recorded because what they do is they simply glorify Jesus, and that is our whole purpose in life, Christian. You're looking for purpose in your life now that you've accepted Jesus Christ? Glorify him. The sole purpose of what we live and why we're here, to glorify God. Whatever he says, do. I love this. Simple obedience. Every one of us wants a radical transformation. We want it to occur in our lives as we follow Jesus. But we must realize this. Radical transformation will occur in your walk with the Lord when you realize that he is the master and you're not. He is the king and you are the subject. He's the boss. You're the servant. Your job is not to order him around or even make suggestions to him. Your place is to be ready for him, rest in him, and do whatever he says. That's what we're called to do as Christians. That's what we're called to do as Christians. I'm not up here telling you that it's, it's a barrel of laughs and that it's real easy to do. You don't hear me saying those kind of things. But that's what we're called to do. Whatever he says, do it. Well, you read through this book, he says an awful lot. He tells us an awful lot of things. How many of the things are you doing in this book? How many of the things are you following in this book? It's an interesting thing that we need to look inside. So as we move along in verses 6 through 8, Jesus solves the problem. He has a solution, and he goes to the servants, and he says this. Now, there were six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Simple instructions. Simple instructions. There are six water pots of stones according to the magnification of purification of the Jews. Matter containing 20 to 30 gallons. What was their purpose? Everyone washed. Everyone had a wash ceremonial before they ate, before they did certain things. They had a wash ceremonial. Each guest was given water to wash their hands, to wash their feet before they came in the house. The jars of water were there to fulfill the Old Testament requirements of ceremonial washing. You are a The Gospel of John was written from a perspective that provides an eyewitness account of what happened during the life of Jesus here on earth. Different than the other three Gospels, John's book describes Jesus in ways that confirm him as the Son of God. There are things done and said that can only point to Jesus being far more powerful than what a human could do. In the Old Testament, God referred to himself as, I am. In this book, John recounts how Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the resurrection and the life. These were bold statements, but Jesus proved throughout his ministry that they were indeed true. He lived a life that compelled people to follow at that time, to seek him out, and to commit their lives. And we can also follow him today. If you missed any part of today's teaching, or you'd like to listen to additional messages from Pastor Dave, visit AssureHopeRadio.com. Perhaps you were listening, you realized that you have some questions about faith, and maybe even about salvation. We'd be happy to talk with you and provide some resources to answer your questions. Give us a call at 609-884-5821. Again, that's 609-884-5821. You can also click on the Jesus tab at AssureHopeRadio.com. This will provide you with a succinct picture of who Jesus is and how he can change your life. Thank you again for taking the time to learn about God's word today. We hope you'll join us again next time on A Sure Hope.